So welcome you this morning. I'm Joel, and what a privilege it is to open God's Word up with you guys. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. We're actually continuing the crucifixion of Christ. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, on your devices. We also printed on our bulletins wonderfully for you. Today we're going to meet the two criminals who are on crosses to Jesus' right and to his left. Have any of you seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? See a few nods. It's a prison film for those who aren't familiar where actor Tim Robbins plays a new inmate named Andy Dufresne. And Morgan Freeman, he plays the part of a longtime prisoner named Red. And there's a scene early on in the movie where Red asks Andy, so why'd you murder your wife? And Andy replies, I didn't do it. And Red smiles at him and he famously quips, Oh, you're going to fit right in here. Everybody here is innocent. And Andy kind of looks at him confused. So Red goes, you didn't know that? And he calls out to another prisoner, Haywood, what are you in here for? Haywood says, I didn't do it. Everybody's innocent. And it becomes this running joke in the movie. Everybody's innocent. Nobody deserves the sentence they're getting. What do you think of those criminals saying that? Do you think they're innocent? Do you think they're getting their just desserts? What about you? What do you deserve in the life you've lived to this point? What do you hope to gain here in the land of the, not the living, of the dying? What do you hope to gain? What do you think you deserve? I ask that because how you answer puts you either on the right hand or the left hand of the most innocent man to ever live this earth. One criminal on the cross next to Christ becomes the greatest tragedy possibly in all of human history. The other is, as J.C. Ryle says, Christ's greatest trophy of grace. What side of Jesus are you on? I'm so glad you're here because the stakes could not be higher. Let us read God's word. Luke chapter 23, we're going to start in verse 34. 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That's Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, forgive them. Father, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly for we are reserving, receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, our time here is so short. Our need is so great. Will you do something momentous in these mere moments we have? Pour out your spirit that we might see the holiest man to ever live and offered his life for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From the start of this gospel that we've been in for it seems like eternity now, Luke has highlighted the forgiveness of sins. Remember how chapter 1 ended? With elderly Zechariah, and he is absolutely giddy over a pair of surprise pregnancies. Because Zechariah saw in baby John and baby Jesus the dawning of a new age. And here's what he said in verse 77. He prophesied of the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. From the get-go of Luke's gospel, he says, Rejoice! Rejoice, Theophilus, in a certain salvation. Forgiveness of sins for who? Prisoners. All mankind is sitting in darkness with death's shadow looming over them. So the arrival of tender mercy the tender mercy of God to spring them free is good news. And by the way, mercy by definition means you're being spared of something that you deserve. When you're running late to church, you know, and you get pulled over for speeding, what do you want? Oh, officer, please have mercy on me. I was running late for church. By the way, mercy doesn't always come. As I can attest to from my last ticket, even if you inform the officer that you're the preacher, Michigan shows no mercy to motoring ministers. But Luke here says, rejoice. Father God shows tender mercy, which actually tells us two things about God. Mercy tells us two things about God. Number one, he's a God of wrath. He is just and he will punish the sins of lawbreakers. And number two, he's a God of love. A father willing and able to forgive sinners in Jesus. And we must hold fast to both of these truths about God, that he is a God of wrath and a God of love. What happens if we don't, Joel? Well, Tim Keller notes, if we only believe in a God of love like many churches preach, we'll live like spoiled children. We'll think and feel we deserve every blessing, and we'll live like hellraisers, can do whatever we want. If we only believe in a God of wrath, which some other churches teach, we will live in, like an abused child. The father frowning on me every day. Get your act together, Joel. Do I have to take you out to the woodshed again? But see, friends, God is a God of wrath and love, which is why forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, this mercy, has been Luke's central theme now for 23 chapters. I invite you to walk through Luke. Chapter 5, you have the paralytic man dropped down, and well, what's his problem? Oh, he needs forgiveness of his sins. The sinful woman, Luke 7, our very first sermon ever at Heart City. The sinful woman, right? She needs forgiveness of sins. The prodigal son, chapter 15. Zacchaeus in the tree, Luke 19. 
over and over and over again. Luke piles on all this information about the forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. And now we come to these sorry thieves. In Luke 23, an innocent Jesus is hanging on the cross beside the two. And what is this scene about? Everything that's come before leads up to this moment. God, Luke is asking you, God through Luke is saying, how are you going to respond to the offer of forgiveness of all your sins? We're going to see God's wrath against sin and his love in sending Jesus to take our place on the cross. I want to refer you to this month's memory verse that captures this. I know you've, maybe some of you wonder, why, why are we doing this, show? Why do adults have to have a memory verse in, in every single bulletin? To reinforce a daily truth so that we don't forget and get, find ourselves being shaped by the world that says, oh, you deserve this, you deserve that, you, and it's all good stuff, right? If you and I commit this verse to daily memory, this is going to be medicine that's going to help us every day. So let's recite our memory verse found at the bottom of our sermon page. Let's recite together. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Roll that around in your hand like a pearl all week. You're going to get new truths and that captures what we have here in Luke. On the cross, Jesus is becoming cursed, the innocent man for our sake. Think about it this way. In love for you, Father God is taking a funnel and sticking it into the heart of his son and pouring into it all the wrath that you deserve for your sins. That's what's happening. Every ounce of your sin is being poured into that so that you can be made right with God. So I ask you, what is your response to the offer of forgiveness? Has anyone ever loved you more or better than Jesus Christ? Let's allow this text to further convince us. I've got uh, four headings. Our first heading is Forgiving Messiah. Forgiving Messiah. Let's look at verse 32 again. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. We begin with two criminals each which woke up in the darkness, right, of a prison cell under the shadow of death. Only this day the shadow was becoming substance. They're on the list today. What if one morning you woke up and you knew it was your last day on earth? Where would your mind go? There's a short book that was really popular not quite 10 years ago. It was called Heaven, How I Got Here, and it's a story, a fictional account of the thief on the cross. It tells the story of the final day in the life of this man, and he wakes up, and what does he recall his childhood? What his dad and mom taught him about God. And then he remembers in his teens, he began to resent the Roman occupiers. Can you imagine having another nation invade your country and making us do whatever they wanted? And he tells the story, recalls the story of a day when they came knocking on his door, the Romans, demanding exorbitant taxes. And he watched at that moment his father's spirit just crushed as he handed over his hard-earned cash, trying to provide for his family. So in anger, what this boy started to do was started stealing, which led him to much worse crimes, far worse crimes, which is true here. 
I'm using the term thief. You find it in the other Gospels, and we know it by that term. But actually, Luke calls them criminals, evildoers, because they've committed far worse crimes than thieving. Romans only crucified you for capital crimes, like murder, sedition. These are hardened criminals with blood on their hands. You ever see, perhaps on television, the childhood pictures of men, criminals who are on death row? You ever see their childhood pictures? You ever wonder what happened to these cute little faces along the way that led them to such evil? The fact is, each and every one of us have pure evil in our hearts from the time we're born. Sure, most people you and I know would never take up a weapon to kill anyone. But if looks could kill, I've had many children look at me and want to murder me. Have you? This is our problem. But nobody thinks we're that bad, despite what actually Jesus taught about our hearts. Jesus said that just to speak evil to a person is like unto murdering them. Ever spoken an evil word against someone? Now, we don't like to hear we're that bad. Come on, Pastor Joel, ease up a little bit here. Actually, neither do these two criminals who actually do have blood on their hands. I've actually served in the local prison for about a year and a half a while back. For what I experienced, Shawshank gets it right. Everybody in prison that I talk to is either innocent or if they're more honest, what they'll say is this. The only difference between you and I is that I got caught. Prisoners, by and large, see themselves as good people. Actually, I did a research on this. A study at Southampton asked prisoners to rate themselves on nine traits, comparing themselves to other prisoners and then to folks outside in the community. Do you want to know the results? The prisoners rated themselves as superior to fellow prisoners and community members in the traits of morality, kindness, trustworthiness, honesty, dependability, compassion, generosity, and self-control. The only outlier was that they only saw themselves as equal to people in the community as being law-abiding. And here are these two fellows heading to their own cross, feeling they're as good or, as, or better than other people. If this is their last day on earth, what would they be thinking? What would you be thinking? I think fearful. Probably bitter over these Roman soldiers. Feeling they're getting a raw deal. Maybe they were trying to help their nation. In the story, Heaven, How I Got Here, a Roman soldier actually at the beginning spits in the thief's breakfast and he says, enjoy your last meal. And this thief hardens his heart and determines he will not show any remorse at this point. He will hate these Romans all the way to the end. He's not going to give them the satisfaction of letting them know that he's upset about his own crucifixion, his own death. So they arrive at the execution place, the skull. How about that for a name? There's actually a lot of speculation. Is this hill in the shape of a skull? The little kids go there because there are so many crucifixions and find skulls and they named it that. Some say that actually Adam, the man who brought sin into the world, was buried here. How fitting it would be if that's true because the cross of Christ is actually placed on a place of death, mounted in it, maybe a skull. Jesus, the skull crusher. I like that. 
the cross his instrument to destroy the power of sin and death. And that's actually the point here. Because notice Luke doesn't go into any details about the crucifixion. It's four words. There they crucified him. Why? Because Luke won't allow any of our condescending sympathy. You won't find Gibson's Passion of the Christ, you know, scenes here in Luke, or any of the Gospels for that matter, with all its screams and blood. Why? Jesus doesn't want you to feel sorry for him. He actually just told women to weep for themselves, not him. Jesus wants us to hate the sin that his cross cured and then fall to our knees and love and worship him. That is what Jesus wants from us. Luke now notes these two criminals are placed on either side. We see Jesus being numbered with the transgressors. And notice, Luke has distinguished them, Jesus from them. Two others who were criminals, not Jesus. They're paying the penalty of their sins. But the amazing thing is, each are equally close to the forgiving Messiah. The only innocent man to ever live. Could they imagine they would spend their final hours on earth, their final day, with the eternal Son of God in between them? Friends, this is no chance happening. This was ordained from eternity past. No different than you being here to take in this scene today, March 26, 2023. And how they and how we respond has eternal benefits or eternal consequences. You can walk away with this from this. Or you can take it in. What would you think? As cruel soldiers then stand back after having put your dying body on display for a watching world to watch you slowly die. And suddenly you hear the agonized man in the middle cross (laughs) begin praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Greek tense actually indicates this is continual prayer. He continued to hear as you're suffering and dying and you're watching these Romans and everyone going and having a good time. Jesus continues to pray, this man on little cross, Father, forgive them for their ignorance. They don't know what they're doing. What does Jesus mean? (laughs) These Romans know exactly what they're doing, don't they? They've done it hundreds of times. They've watched prisoners over and over die a slow, agonizing death. And they don't care about anything. Well, that's not quite right. They care about something. Who gets Jesus' garments? They stripped him naked. He's hanging there, naked. And while he agonizes there, they're playing a game, seeing who can roll the lucky die, get his garments. I found myself wondering if I was one of those thieves. This... (laughs) prayer that makes zero sense caused them to suddenly trigger a memory from a messianic psalm that they learned as kids psalm 22 there's your homework write that down psalm 22 that's your chapter to read this week let me read verse 16 on from psalm 22 they have pierced my hands and my feet i can count all my bones they stare and gloat over me They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Imagine being on the cross next to Christ and witnessing Psalm 22 come to pass before your eyes, which predicted this almost a thousand years before the Romans came along and invented crucifixion. 
Did they connect the dots? Does that impress them? Does that impress you? It doesn't seem to make any immediate impressions. Verse 35, And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. We move from forgiving Messiah to fourfold mocking. Fourfold mocking. You ever heard of the term herd mentality? Herd mentality, yeah. There's a tendency for folks to conform to the group around you. That's what we find here. There's a crowd, and Luke highlights them, but he also especially focuses on the Jewish rulers. These are the keepers of morality. Next, you have the Roman soldiers. These are the Gentile journeymen. You have an ancient social media post right above Jesus from Pontius Pilate, the governor. All here at the cross. All of them mocking Jesus. You know what Luke's doing? He's giving a wide sweep of humanity all at the foot of the cross so that you will see yourself there too. And herd mentality leads to fourfold mocking of the man on the middle cross. They know he's innocent. What they don't know is that this is going to bring them horrible judgment. That's why Jesus is praying. No matter. Look how we are. This is how we are. We see it all the time. One group thinks it's cool to mock, so others join in. Everyone else is jumping off the bridge. You're going to do it too? Oh no, I'm quoting my mother now. <laughs> I've never heard that in a while. It starts with the religious leaders mocking him. He won't, he won't save himself. He saved others. If he is the Christ, they laugh. Ha, 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 Jesus. They're mocking him for his kindness to others. Next, the soldiers join in. They're actually fulfilling another prophecy, Psalm 69, offering him sour wine. And they join in with the rulers mocking, If you are the king of the Jews... Now, there's a fourth mocker here that's not named. But he was announced in the last chapter. He was the one who turned Judas. He's the one Jesus warned Peter about. This is now his hour of power. And by the way, who was it that mocked Jesus back in Luke 4, saying, If you are the Son of God, Satan. Satan mocked Jesus and his identity, why? To get Jesus to avoid the cross. Do you see who the leader of this hostile herd is? They're all puppets of Satan. Every one of them. And they're all working for Satan to get Jesus to come down off the cross. So nobody gets saved. Satan's still at work today trying to destroy Christ's work. Who's behind this anti-Christian free fall of our culture going on right now? Don't think you're immune. There are zero independent thinkers. In John 8, Jesus told a group of Jews who were rejecting him it was due to daddy issues. Remember that text? In ignorance, Jesus said, you're living to please your father, Satan. Realize everybody that you meet, every person you're going to talk to this week is living to please their father. 
either Satan or Father God. And the evidence, I think, right here is in criminal number one. He's clearly a pawn of Satan at this point. He becomes a mob follower. That's our third point, mob follower. He, of all people, joins in the mocking of Jesus. You think that the last thing he would want to do is to join in with the Romans in doing anything, right? Isn't this completely illogical? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, I thought, right? Jesus is undergoing the same treatment from these cruel Romans that he is. But even he joins in with the crowd, making it actually fivefold mocking. Luke says he rails at Jesus. We'll spend our remaining time contrasting now these two criminals, these two paths, the endings of these two stories. You have two men who are both equally guilty. Two men are both dying on the same day. Two men who are equally close to Jesus Christ, equally able to hear his prayer for forgiveness, each seeing prophecy fulfilled, and each with an opportunity to respond. What are they going to do in this, their last hour? The first becomes a mob follower, and consequently one of the greatest tragedies in all human history. The other becomes a mercy finder, moving him from crucified criminal to actually the most blessed man in all Jerusalem this day. Let's consider thief number one who says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He looks at the cross and he sees this as a contradiction to Jesus' kingship. And then he makes a demand that he also deserves better. Jesus, save me. Notice there's no acknowledgement that he's getting what he deserves. None. That kind of makes him blind to the purpose of Jesus' cross. The irony being if Jesus actually did come off the cross, nobody's saved. Let's focus on his demand. He's demanding, isn't he? Jesus, if you get me out of my mess, I will follow you. Take away my suffering and, and then I'll serve you. Ever heard that? I've heard that many times. People get real excited about Jesus for a minute. Jesus, if you do what I ask, if you heal my cancer, if you get me a job, if you make me happy, I promise I'll serve and follow you. If you are the Christ, make my life better. And the only salvation they want is actually a little more life here. That's all they want. They want Jesus to give them their best life now. This pastor don't won't preach that. There's no thought of eternity or of Jesus as his actual Lord. This is why Jesus doesn't pay him any mind. Because Jesus will not be a means to anybody's ends. Think about it. If they say, I'm happy to serve you, Jesus, if you give me what I want, then I'm actually saying, I'll serve you if you help me to live for the thing I love better than you. That's what you're saying. But Jesus won't have any rivals. He will not have any rivals. He wants your whole heart. Now, it's not that we cannot ask Jesus to take away our suffering or to help us out or pray for folks in Mississippi or with mental or, mental or health issues. We can pray for that. We can ask Jesus for anything, but Jesus must be our supreme love. And why wouldn't you want to respond and make Jesus supreme in your life? He created man, who then rebelled at the tree. And so he prepared a second tree to save you, where he's mocked, displayed naked, 
paying for the sins that we committed. Here he is. <laughs> do you see him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, they don't even get what we're doing to save them. Even as they look at me right now, they don't get it. Forgive them anyways. Breaks my heart. I've seen the second thief, or the first thief in many lives. But wait, here on death row, here on death row, on the other side of Jesus, someone's finding mercy. The first thief saw the cross as a contradiction to Jesus' kingship. The second thief sees the cross as confirmation of God's mercy. And we see the first fruits of Jesus' prayer of forgiveness being answered right now. Verse 40, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due rewards of our deeds? But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Calvin says that since the creation of the world, there was never a more remarkable and striking example of faith than the thief on the cross. Think about it. He sees this bloody, dying Jew being mocked. And he sees glory. <laughs> and he believes. We know this because he leans around Jesus and starts screaming at the other guy, Shut up, you fool! Shut up! Don't you get what's going on here? You're moments away from facing holy God, and you're a sinner under condemnation. Have you no fear? Can you only think about this present moment? Parents, as a side, here's wonderful proof that your labors were not in vain over your straying children? Why in the world does like the number one wisdom principle found in the Bible pop into this guy's thoughts right now at this moment? Because he was taught as a boy of the path of faith, of the mercy of God. The only way this thief is able to fear God at the very end and then go on to confess his guilt, acknowledge Jesus to be the righteous king, and then ask for mercy it's because his parents taught him and because Jesus prayed for him. And he's saved. You planted seeds in those hearts. You have a chance right up to the end for that to come to fruition. It's amazing what he says. Look what follows. He confesses his guilt. He acknowledges he's getting what he deserves, unlike the rest of these prisoners. He's ready to accept death. He's ready to die. And he's even admitting he deserves hell for his sins. Step two, he declares Jesus to be a righteous man, the only one who doesn't deserve this. He's witnessing actually to the other thief. You see that? And more, he actually sees Jesus, this crucified bloody Jew, as a king. Jesus has a kingdom. Wow, a kingdom beyond this world. He acknowledges his guilt. He professes who Jesus is. And thirdly, he throws a Hail Mary. <laughs> he asks Jesus for mercy and he says, please remember me. 
I've thought about this all week. Jesus, all I want is you just to remember me. What would you ask Jesus for in your dying breath? What would you ask him for? What would you seek from Jesus as you're leaving this world behind? Everything here. I was saying, Jesus, uh, please let me in your glory. I'll just, I'll be happy to be a doorkeeper. You know, I'm a prodigal, not worthy to be called your son. Let me be a hired servant. Not this man. He doesn't believe he deserves heaven. Do you see his humility? He doesn't deserve entrance. But he makes a simple plea to be just remembered. So many people just want to be remembered. They want to be remembered in their family's memories. Even though I don't remember who was four or five generations past me. It's sad. But he wants to be remembered by Jesus because his heart is captivated by Jesus. This righteous man dying on the cross for him. He wants to live on in Jesus' memory. What do you think of that? Do you desire that? That would be enough for him. That'd be more than enough. And what does he get? He gets the greatest assurance, the greatest pardon in all of the New Testament. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. (laughs) Do you think his heart skipped a beat? I was surprised he didn't have a heart attack and die right then on the cross. I'm certain that the remaining hours as he hung there were excruciating, but this man's soul was at peace. Any Christian can endure any suffering that this life will throw at you if you can hold on to this kind of assurance that you belong body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, truly here, by the way, he puts one of those, this is going to happen. I like more, though, that they will be with him. He will be with him face to face the very moment he dies. With me is the best part of this wonderful assurance. To get back to what Adam and Eve lost in the first paradise, the garden paradise, to be with God. Adam and Eve walk with God. To hear what Mary heard back all the way in Luke chapter 1. The Lord is with you. That is this thief's glory, my dear friends. It's a comforting word to any of you who think there's no way that you could be saved. Pastor Joel, (laughs) you have no idea the awful thing I just did the other day or the thought that went through my mind in this service. Pastor Joel, there's no way. (laughs) No. Friends, actually the other gospels say this thief who was just pardoned was actually mocking Jesus with the other thief just moments before. Cursing Jesus, blaspheming, that's the word. But he saw Jesus praying for him. And he felt there was still hope. And that's what I want us to leave with. There's still hope. No, you don't deserve salvation. None of us do. But do you see hope in this dying Messiah? This forgiving Messiah? Think about what goes down in a matter of hours. I love trying to imagine this scene. You know, the angel party alert went on upstairs at this point. And all the angels are getting ready to celebrate another sinner coming. They're thinking, ah, is it going to be like Zacchaeus? Is it going to be like Levi? Did he? And all. And suddenly one of these angels is getting his party hats ready. He notices this guy, this fellow, suddenly stand at the gates of paradise. Angel says, you? How in the world did you get into heaven? The fellow shrugs, I don't know. I'm not sure. Another walks up and says, 
Aren't you the rotten scoundrel who got crucified and was cursing Jesus? Yeah, yeah that's me, all right. <laughs> Hold on here. Don't, don't, don't go anywhere. We've got to get our manager. <laughs> and the manager <laughs> looks him over and says, Well, hey, uh, were you justified? Uh, did you profess faith in, in Jesus as the Son of God? And he says, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> How in the world did a rotten scoundrel like you get to the gates of paradise? And the three thief simply shrugs and says, I have no idea. All I know is the man on the middle cross said I could come. Is that your profession? Is that your hope? None of us deserve heaven. You won't get there by saying, I did this, or I did that, or I went to church every Sunday, or I went to Bible studies, or I said lots of prayers. If you put an I there at the start of it, you're already going wrong. It's not based on your feelings, how much you know about God. My theology isn't getting me into heaven. All you need to do is admit, I don't deserve salvation. But Jesus went to the cross, and I asked him to show me mercy. And he said, I could come. And I hope to God you will respond in faith today. I say that as one who knows that God sovereignly saves. I preached many a sermon. Why is it that one person hears the good news, their heart is broken, they repent of sin and are saved, and the next person hears the same message about the greatest act of love in all of human history, and they go home, maybe walk out early, have dinner, watch TV, and go on as if it were nothing. Why? Why the two? Why do some remain like the first thief, eyes fixed on this dying world all the way to the end, and others sees glory and becomes the happiest cross bearer and wearer to ever live? I close with J.C. Ryle. We have no answer to these questions. We only know that it is so and that it is useless, useless to deny it. Our own duty is plain. We are to make diligent use of all the means which God has appointed for the good of souls. God's sovereignty was never meant to destroy man's responsibility. As one has said, one thief was saved so that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner may presume. Don't presume, my friend. Turn to Christ on the cross today. A tornado could come through Elkhart any minute. Make this the best day of your life. Won't you pray with me? O rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide thyself in thee. The water and the blood, which from thy riven side that flowed, be for me the double cure. Cleanse me from my guilt and shame. Foul we to you, Heavenly Father, we fly. And we pray, Lord Jesus, will you wash us, lest we die. We thank you for this wonderful assurance that even the worst sinner can be saved. That you came, Jesus, not to die for the wonderful, the lovely, those who have their acts together, but you came to die for those who are willing to admit that we've never got it right in this world. Send your spirit into all our hearts. Leave none of us unchanged. Lord Jesus, will you remember us? We ask and pray in your name. Amen. <laughs>